Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 44, Revelation, Freed Us from Our Sins. And in this episode, we're going to pick up where we left off from episode 43 and tackle verses 5 and 6 from Revelation chapter 1. And as I shared last week, this particular episode, I do intend to be very pastoral But it also shapes many, many themes that we need to grasp and understand as we begin to walk our way through the book of Revelation. And so we're not going to advance very far in terms of the number of verses that we tackle, but I think you're going to appreciate the necessity of slowing down at the beginning to make sure that we are picking up the right themes in the right way before we move forward. So let's jump right into it. As we begin, allow me just to read Revelation 1, 5 through 6, and as usual, I'm reading from the ESV. And so here's what it says towards the end of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now the majority of this episode, I'm simply going to talk to you about a few of the themes that surface in these two verses. And I'd like to start by just reminding you of the second part that John writes in verse 6, that he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And as I shared last week, I do intend to remind you of helpful episodes that we have already looked at, particularly from the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, to remind us that the themes that began there are going to be very, very central to understand how Jesus ultimately makes sense of these themes and then how his followers make sense of these themes and ultimately how John intends for us all to see them culminating in the book of Revelation. And we're right back around again to themes of kingdom and priests. And so if you go back in the podcast to particularly episode 10, a Garden in Eden, episode 11, Work It and Keep It, and then episode 12, Eden's Garden Temple. We, we spent three weeks in a row looking at the fact that the temple idea being on a mountain, Eden being on a mountain, having water sources flowing out from it to water all of those spaces on the earth, and the verbs used to describe the first man and woman in the garden as those who work it and keep it are words that will later be used to describe the priests in their work in the tabernacle and in the temple in both the worship they offer to God as well as the assistance and the work that they do in serving the people who come to sacrifice at the altar. And so we we looked at length, and I won't take the time here to repeat all of that. I would highly encourage you to go back and re-listen to those three episodes as I will point us forward to these ideas of kingdom and priests. And of course, we know that Jesus as our king and as a bringer of our kingdom, we looked at in another episode in its entirety, episode 24, how it all fits together. You might remember that I offered a 30,000 foot view of Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 attempting to capture the theme of the kingdom of God as a very helpful way of understanding the contents of the Bible from beginning to end. And of course, we defined 
the kingdom of God, or I chose to define the kingdom of God the way Vaughn Roberts does in his book, God's Big Picture, but simply as God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. And we can see how the various parts of the biblical narrative relate to each of those sections, depending upon where you are, depending upon what kind of kingdom people are building or think they're building, and so on. And then in episode 27, Priests in Need of a Priest, we looked at Exodus 32. And we looked at the difference between the way Aaron acted as a priest before the people to God and the way Moses acted as a priest before the people to God in response, of course, to what God told the people immediately after bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And I'll read that passage for you here just to remind you. It's Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, although all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so this is what God's expectations and his hopes for his own people would be, but shortly after, or actually rather, while Moses is receiving the law on top of Mount Sinai, the people go into idolatry, and Moses and Aaron are then, um, we, are, we see them act, in a sense, as priests, and what is their posture between God and a wayward people at the base of of the mountain. And, and I, I again won't repeat that episode, but I would highly encourage you to listen to that as well to bring back to your mind with this idea of what it means to be made into a kingdom, what it means to be a priest. And then, of course, episode 37, the servant creates servants. So we, we looked at all of the ways that Jesus fulfills the themes of kingdom and priest and temple and light, and then how Paul's understanding through the New Testament embodies the ideas that Jesus' followers, those who are in him, pick up the same themes of kingdom, temple, priests, and light. And here, of course, John is just making us aware of two of them. He's reminding us that we have been made into a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And so one final passage that I'd like to bring to your attention, and, and I'll read it here for you, is 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10 where Peter picks up on this Exodus 19 language that was once applied to all Israel and very easily through Jesus applies it to the Christians. And here's what he says in verse 4 through verse 10 of 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This, of course, is referencing Jesus. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we are called to be priests. And according to 1 Peter 2.9, we act as priests most effectively when we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our ability as priests to God and as light bearers to the world is directly connected to our recognition of our need for a priest in our own lives and our recognition of just what it is that we have been freed from within our own hearts. And so again, to reread Revelation 1.5, to him who has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, Jesus actually had a conversation with some of his own people in John chapter 8 that I think can shed some light onto just what John is referring to here in Revelation 1. And in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then going on a few verses later, he says this in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So what it sounds like Jesus has come to address then, or what Jesus has come to shine the light on, what Jesus has come to free people from, are their sins, what Jesus calls darkness. And so what John is telling us in Revelation 1.5 is that Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. But even for some of the Jews in John 8 who had believed Jesus, their response to Jesus' teaching was met with, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, as almost like a a funny little side note, it it, it is actually quite fascinating to me that these particular Jews claim never to have been enslaved to anyone. And and I do wonder, have they forgotten their people's time in Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years? You know, know, notice they, they hearken back to Abraham. So Abraham was prior to Israel's captivity in slavery. And so in some sense, they're connecting their heritage back to a guy who uh, part of that heritage and part of their history most certainly did imply or did involve um, a 400 years of slavery. Now, of course, Jesus is about to redefine for everyone just what he means by being a slave. But I always find the Jews' response here a bit humorous. And I, I wonder, you know, if Jesus were going to respond to them like he does on other occasions. He might just tell them that their response is, you know, misguided or blind or both. But in any event, these Jews view of themselves, their belief that in their own eyes, they've never been slaves of anyone prevented them 
from actually recognizing just what it was Jesus had come to set them free from. And Jesus' response to them is both clarifying and fitting. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, it is really tempting to conclude from Jesus' words that all he is saying is that people need forgiven of their sins. I personally have heard it taught from John 8, 32, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free means that Jesus is the truth and by trusting in him, we will find freedom. Now that is absolutely true. But how does that work? How does trusting in Jesus provide us with freedom? You see, according to Jesus, finding freedom cannot be merely reduced to being forgiven. For the simple fact that I can be forgiven for my sins and then find that I go right back tomorrow and do the same thing. I can then confess my sins and ask for forgiveness again, which I graciously receive. But as I go, I often find myself repeating the same sin again tomorrow that I ask forgiveness for today. So how does this work really? What does Jesus want to do in and through us? Well, the fact is we need forgiveness of our sins in order to move forward, in order to enter into the relationship with God through Jesus that we all so desperately need. The forgiveness of our sins is the hope of the gospel, but the purpose of forgiving us of our sins is so that Jesus can set us free from them. To free us from those enslaving tendencies, to free us from the never-ending pattern of sin, confess, receive forgiveness, sin, confess, receive forgiveness, sin, confess, receive forgiveness. Because the truth is, and this is hard, I know, the truth is someone can be forgiven before God and still be a slave to sin in their everyday life. Remember what Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now the answer to this dilemma requires that we actually read what Jesus says in verse 31 of John chapter 8 which just so happens to be the first half of the sentence that is oftentimes quoted. Now, we need the whole sentence. We actually need the whole paragraph, but we'll we'll settle for at least the whole sentence, right? Because what Jesus actually says is, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if you abide in, trust in, rest in Jesus's words. And the times when you and I most need to trust in or rest in Jesus's words to us are precisely in those times when we are tempted toward believing something else. Those times may be when we are looking to be right in our own eyes or to believe that our value is rooted in who we are or in what we've done or not done or in what we have and not in Jesus himself. 
So you see, it's in those times that we are instructed to abide in Jesus's word and thereby act as his disciples that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Being set free, remember, is the goal. That's the goal. He's come to set us free. Trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ precisely at the moment when we are tempted not to, to rest in Jesus's words to us about who we are in him. And so it isn't enough just to know the truth. You will not be free unless at the moment of temptation, you choose to abide in that truth. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? Well, I'm, I'm bringing it up here because Revelation 1, 5-6 tells us that Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And so his forgiveness of us is meant to lead us toward freedom in our own lives, which is what the life of the kingdom is actually ultimately all about. Because he ultimately wants us to be his priests to his God and Father, approaching the throne of God on behalf of the world. So this is what it means to be a priest. And John knows that only those who are truly free themselves in relation to their own sin will be able to most effectively bring others into the presence of God. Others who certainly have issues with sin themselves. And how does this happen? How are we freed from our sins and made into a kingdom filled with priests? It happens through the short phrase used right in the center of verse 5, by his blood. So Jesus' shed blood is how this happens. It's what sets us free from enslavement to sin, and it's what, according to Romans 5, justifies us or makes us in the right. You see, there's nothing in us that makes us in the right. And a lot of times we're tempted to defend ourselves or defend that we are actually in the right by the things that we say or do or think or believe. And we find that we don't have as much patience or long suffering with those who disagree with us. But John is attempting to push us in the direction of being priests in this kingdom that we are currently in. But the million dollar question is what happens when we try to act as priests and we are not free from our own sins, but rather our own sins still plague us? How effective will we be at assisting others in gaining freedom from their sins if we are still plagued by the same ones in our lives? Or actually, Jesus poses this question in different words, but it's really the same question. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And so what I would actually like to do is, is allow me to, to see if I can give you an example, a real life example of how this works. Years ago, a good friend of mine asked to speak with me about the difficult time she was having dealing with her feelings toward her son's ex-wife. False accusations had been made against her son, as well as a lot of unfair treatment, and he was hurt, and as his mother, so was my friend. She wasn't eating, 
and she wasn't sleeping. And she didn't know what to do about any of it. So we began to talk. And as we did, it became clear that she was trapped. She was trapped in a cell of hurt and anger. Trapped because she knew she was right in being upset about what had been done, but also knowing that her feelings toward her ex-daughter-in-law were actually damaging her health. And she didn't know what to do. And so we began to talk about forgiveness. Now, you know, and, and I know that Jesus spoke often about forgiveness in his teachings. And in the book of Matthew in particular, he spoke about unforgiveness in relation to something that binds you, that imprisons you, and that takes you captive. And in Matthew chapter 12, immediately after freeing a man from demonic oppression, Jesus speaks about going into a strong man's house, binding the strong man, and then being free to plunder his possessions. He's speaking in some coded, veiled language, but he's actually speaking about this enslavement that the enemy traps us all in as a result of unforgiveness, both in relation to God and in relation to others. And this enemy has captured the whole world, convincing them that they are in the right when they withhold forgiveness from another person. But it traps them in a cell of their own making. They are bound, and what they need is for someone stronger to loose them. That's the idea. And I know those terms sound a little strange and archaic to us, but they're the words that Jesus uses, and I find them kind of helpful when I think of somebody being tied up or being untied. Those are, are good images for me in particular. This is why Jesus actually uses the same binding and loosing language a few chapters later when he gives his parable on forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18. And if you've been listening in on this podcast, episode 23, The Freedom of Forgiveness, was a sermon where I preached on this passage from Matthew 18. If you have not listened to that episode, I would highly encourage you to do so. Depending on what may be going on in your life right now, that message may literally change your life. So my friend and I talked through all sorts of things, including some of the hurt that her ex-daughter-in-law had experienced herself at the hands of her family growing up. And my friend tried to be as understanding as possible regarding her ex-daughter-in-law's life experiences and attempt to grasp the idea that hurt people hurt people. In other words, when you have been hurt, it is very easy for you to hurt others, sometimes intentionally and sometimes not. It's very easy to hurt others out of our own hurt. And my friend opened herself up to the kind of empathy and love that Jesus had toward her ex-daughter-in-law and the kind of love my friend wanted to have for her as well. She wanted to be free of all the bitterness. She wanted to be free of the effects of her son's divorce negatively impacting her life. She wanted to be able to love, and she was finding that next to impossible. She wanted Jesus to set her free. And the way Jesus tells us that we can be free is to abide in his word, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Now, abiding in Jesus's word for my friend involved Jesus's teaching on forgiveness. What's really going on when people are struggling to forgive and how trusting in him can set us free from the bondage that unforgiveness produces in our lives? And so I asked her if we could pray together about it. Forgiving her ex-daughter-in-law for all the wrong that she'd done and all the hurt she'd caused. My friend said, yes. But then she hesitated. And with a look of genuine concern, she said to me, if I forgive her, won't that be like me betraying my son? He's still hurt. How will I be able to help my son deal with his hurt if I've forgiven her? Now, to date, or at least to my memory, these are some of the most insightful questions that I have ever been asked. And apart from Jesus, in that moment, providing me the words to say, I have no idea where they came from. Because I had never before had the thoughts that I answered her with. But I simply turned to her and said, you and your son are in a prison. You're both trapped. And the enemy wants you held captive there. Jesus has the key and he's come to set you free. But how can you help free your son if you are in the cell with him? No, you trust Jesus and follow him. You abide in Jesus. And then when you are outside the cell with Jesus, then you will be free to truly help your son. And instantly the concern on her face vanished. She sat up straight and looked me right in the eye and said, yes, you're right. Okay, I'm ready to pray. And the prayer she uttered was one of the most beautiful things I have ever heard. She poured her heart out, giving to Jesus willingly all her hurt and anger and bitterness and resentment, telling him that she knows he's the only one strong enough to handle that amount of garbage and that she was crumpling under its weight. Then she asked Jesus's forgiveness for the way she chose to deal with her hurt on her own and asked him to deal with that and to forgive her of all of that. And then the two of us prayed that Jesus would come and fill those now vacant places in her heart with his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And he did. And my friend is a different person today. She is no longer bitter. She no longer has sleep issues. Her appetite has returned. And she has love in her heart toward her ex-daughter-in-law. John tells us in Revelation 1 that he has freed us from our sins by his blood. And Paul adds to this understanding by telling us in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. It's for freedom. That's what Revelation needs us to understand as the book begins. John tells us that Jesus made us a kingdom. And when Jesus first began to proclaim this kingdom, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, entrance into this kingdom takes place through repentance and receiving the forgiveness of our sins. This is why the first of Jesus's blessings for members of his kingdom is for the poor in spirit. 
because this is what our need for forgiveness is meant to produce in us. There is nothing in or about any member of the kingdom that ought to make him see himself or herself as better than anyone else in the kingdom since the only reason we are a part of it in the first place is because we've had to admit our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness. And so John ends his statement by reminding us that all the praise for this forgiveness of sins, all the glory, all the dominion, all the passion, all the glory goes to the one who forgives us who sets us free, who reigns as king in his kingdom. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory. To him be the praise. To him be the honor. The word dominion is a word for ruling. This is the way that Jesus rules his kingdom. He rules it through forgiveness. He rules it through his shed blood. He rules it by offering peace to its citizens who've come to him as sinful, broken, needy people in need of him to forgive them. And then who adopt the principles of the king in the way they choose to live out their kingdom reality. He has made us a kingdom, yes. And he brought about that kingdom, how? By shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. This is how Revelation wants us to think about kingdoms and about peace and about shed blood because those three concepts are going to come up again in the book. But whose blood being shed and how that peace comes about and the ideals that are held to within those kingdoms may or may not resemble the way Jesus brought about his kingdom. And as I shared last week, and do intend to repeat periodically through this episode, whichever version of the kingdom most captures, and the, the ideals of those kingdoms which most capture our hearts, really defines which kingdom we feel most comfortable in. And when our ideals find themselves aligning closer with the image of the beast than they do with the image of the lamb, it's reason for us to step back and say, where are there things still going on in my heart that do not need to be there? And what further things do I need Jesus to help me walk through in order to be able to be an effective priest in and for him? both to God and to the world. And again, as we've talked at, at, at length about kingdom and priest and light and temple, we are going to see that the church is going to be called to be lampstands, light bearers, shining the light of truth into the darkness. And if there is any darkness within us, Jesus wants to shine his light there first. And this is the way that it works. And so when my friend was able to see the subtle but very real presence of darkness in her own heart, and she was able to receive the light of Jesus's truth and the light of Jesus's forgiveness into her own heart, she found Jesus's strength. 
She found Jesus's love. She found Jesus's kindness for someone who had hurt her. And so I am sharing with you once again that I do intend to be pastoral as we walk through this book because I really believe John was pastoral when he wrote it. And I will extend the same invitation I did last week. If you have anything going on in your life where some of the things that we are talking about here seem to impact you more on a personal level than they do on a, hmm, I always was curious what the book of Revelation was about. And I would encourage you and welcome you to contact me. You can follow me on Instagram at the Unbinding the Bible podcast. You always can email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. And I do want to thank those of you who have reached out at various points, found me on Facebook or found me, you happen to already know me, but I want to keep these conversations going because I believe the church needs to be positioned before its king and before its savior in the healthiest way possible. And I really truly believe that this is done in community. And so I'd love to get to know you and I'd love to hear from you. Until next week, talk to you then.